Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Martha Stuman on the show of the Living Wines Collective. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, Lovey. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. So you grew up in California. I grew up in Sebastopol, which is now definitely a well-known wine region. But at the time I was there, it was much more an apple producing area and, and a lot of dairy farms. But a lot of farming. Yeah, a lot of farming. Always agricultural. A little bit of a kind of hippie retreat vibe to it. <laughs> Who are you as a person? I mean, when you were younger, what were you up to? I was middle child, two brothers, and I kind of always, I wanted to be a tomboy and I would do tomboy-like things. And then occasionally I'd go play with my friends and, you know, sneak that I was playing Barbies, but never really told anyone. So you're so. exactly the same person. So that's <laughs> that's kind of my read like right now. I mean, minus the Barbies, but like yeah, yeah. kind of tomboy. and Yeah, exactly. You know, you kind of tomboy. I, I like... You know, I work in wine production and I love the machinery. I love trying to fix things, but I also, you know, want to be feminine. So, yeah. Yeah. What was your family like? Both of my parents own their own businesses and both in some capacity work with their hands. My mom designs gardens and so she's outdoors gardening all day. And my dad builds homes. So, a lot of kind of do it yourself. Sometimes, you know, you look at it almost to a fault where it's like, oh, we've actually had that washing machine for 25 years, which my, is excellent. I mean, I love that people people can take things apart and fix them. And I think, you know, there's a lot of value in that. And so that that definitely left an impression on me. At least they fixed them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. As a, my mom just kept things. <laughs> I remember we used to have to take the dryer, the clothes out of the dryer because it would start them on fire if you left it there too long. <laughs> it just would keep going. There was no stop. <laughs> And, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's a little quirks, little quirks like that. Like, don't leave the house with the dryer on because like, you can't. Because right, because there's not going to be a house later. Yeah, yeah. And I was always like, could we get this fixed? By is there someone who does this kind of thing, or maybe mm-hmm. just get a new one? You know, it wasn't her style to spend yeah, money. Yeah, exactly. No, same with my with my folks. Where'd you go to school? I grew up in Sebastopol. Um, graduated and knew I wanted to be in a city and be somewhere that was, you know, Sebastopol is Green Party majority. So I wanted to say, okay, let's let's get some other perspectives. And yes, I'm fairly liberal. Um, but so I went to LA and went to school there. 
to UCLA and... You wanted a big change. You wanted to get out of the neighborhood, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved my high school. I loved my upbringing, but I definitely wanted an adventure. And so uh, I saw that in LA and got there. And the only thing I knew I wanted to do when I got to school was study Italian. But I also thought, okay, I don't want to solely study Italian because I don't know where that will actually take me in terms of career. So played around for a while in school and finally decided on a geography environmental studies major, which is very broad. So yeah, started the Italian minor right away and then did the geography major. I just, I did a lot of science as well. I thought I was in the pre-med, pre-dental program, just, you know, in case. Where was the Italian thing coming from? My maternal grandfather is Italian from New Jersey and he actually didn't even learn Italian. So it was my great grandparents were the last Italian speakers and on kind of that side of the family. And I don't know, my mom was always saying, oh, I wish I was full Italian. And there was a little bit of that kind of Mediterranean vibe, but I just, I don't know. I thought the language was beautiful and I was attracted to the culture very much. What little I knew about it, the big vegetable garden, the kind of more simple cooking. And then I just liked this idea of a lifestyle that revolved around food. So it was definitely just this romantic dream I had and it ended up being as cool as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it seemed to work out pretty well for you. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's amazing. You learn an, a language where people say, oh, learn Spanish. You know, they only speak Italian in one country in the world. And it ended up getting me a lot of jobs down the road. You know, when I was in college, I got hired at an Italian restaurant solely on the basis that I spoke Italian, not anything to do with any waitressing experience or any hostessing experience. And, uh, and you know, that kind of continued to happen for me where you have this connection where you can communicate with people and then you kind of rise to the occasion in terms of the other skills. What was college life for you? I definitely, as most people do, I think you become more focused as you progress. Uh, and an undergraduate degree is fairly broad anyway, but I started to realize I took a a pretty instrumental course for me from a professor named Judith Carney. And she taught about food systems and the history and politics of food. And, you know, growing up in a pretty, Sebastopol is a pretty, I don't want to say insular, but I just didn't quite understand, you know, it was like that kind of loss of innocence, understanding the political ramifications. There's a political tie to pretty much everything and, and an economic tie to pretty much everything. And there's this, it just kind of blew my mind that something as basic as food had been used as a weapon or as a, a political tool throughout so much of history. And I found that really, really, really fascinating. So kind of dove into that and got really interested in more traditional farming systems as opposed to, you know, kind of the more industrial farming model that's pretty prevalent now. Looking at more small family farms or? Yeah, small family farms and, you know, kind of polycultural systems. And that's that's become something that's pretty normal to talk about. But I think even when I was in undergrad, it was still not talked about that often. So for me, it was kind of this new um, concept and it was getting almost exposed in the world. So yeah, after school, I went to work on this farm in Tuscany that had vineyards, olive orchards. We grew the grain that we fed the pigs. We had, you know, a lot of heritage breed animals. And it just seemed like everything is a systems approach and everything kind of made sense on the farm. 
you know, everything was being recycled. There wasn't waste. And that was kind of, that was kind of my introduction to wine was through that lens. And at that time, I wasn't sure. I mean, I thought, oh, it'd be cool to work in the vineyards. Again, how romantic. And I had really no intention of becoming a winemaker or a grape grower. You were more interested in the farming. Yeah, more interested in the farming and the food system. When I came back to the States after Tuscany, I, I actually applied for some jobs with Slow Food USA, but then kind of decided that winemaking was really, really fun. And being in the vineyard was, it was like, it was like when I was younger and I got to play, you know, you know, when you see that potential for uh, joy in your career, I think, I think you at least have to have to follow through and see if that really exists. What was the next step? I mean, not knowing anything about the wine industry, the next step was going on the internet, typing in wine jobs, that pops up, and then just applying for whatever was close by. And um, and I don't want to, okay, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a liar, but I remember call, getting called up for the interview and the assistant winemaker at the place I ended up working in California she said, oh, you know, do you, okay, so you have a little bit of experience. Do you know how to do pump overs and X, Y, and Z? And I said, oh, sure, 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 definitely. And, and then I remember, of course, going and looking it up immediately and asking people. And there's a little bit of that, a little bit of that in my career. <laughs> oh, I definitely know how to do that. No problem. But, but I had great guidance at that first kind of more commercial winemaking job because the place in Tuscany was was just for the surrounding community and the farm itself. The wine was solely for that. It wasn't sold commercially. So that sounds like a big change, though. Yeah, it was a big change. I get to California and eyes wide open and wanting to learn everything I can. And they gave me a lot of responsibility. Definitely a large, large winery in which there was a lot of structure. And there was a specific way the wines were going to be made. And so I started learning, I guess, kind of the California winemakers toolbox where, you know, what's available to you. Okay, there's tartaric acid that you can add. You inoculate with yeast. And it was definitely winemaking that was more recipe-based and based on numbers. But there was also a lot of sensory exercises that I was exposed to. And they did have a program with one of their wines where it was a native fermentation. So that was the first time, okay, that that's a possibility that there's actually yeast on grape skins. I mean, I was learning everything from the ground up. So yeah, it was a great experience for me. Obviously with my upbringing was most interested in the native fermentations because I, I thought they were fascinating. And, and yet I worked for this place, uh, two different vintages and I, I remember the second vintage, I was more kind of in a, in a managerial role. And they gave me all the winemaking protocols. Like, you know, for the Sauvignon Blanc, we add two pounds per thousand gallons of tartaric acid. And and I remember just taking these and thinking, okay, I really, I need to like put these in a safe place. I need to keep these. The, uh, these are going to be useful for me down the road. I need to know, like, this is like the proprietary secret. This is like the key to making wine. And I say that more as you know, to highlight how little I knew in terms of, uh, I didn't really have any sort of intuitive memory yet with winemaking. There was no, there was no way for me to trust what I was 
tasting and smelling and translate that into any sort of action at that point. It's not like one of those cases where you grow up in a winery and your dad shows you what to do and you taste as a kid and so you have an own imprint. So when you go to school, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, yeah, well, we didn't quite do that that way back at the winery. In this case, everything is new and you're just like, oh, that's how it's done. This is the recipe. Absolutely. And and I was a completely blank slate. And uh, yeah, you take everything in, which I think is, is excellent. You know, I think having curiosity and, and going out and learning and, but hopefully you, you don't just stop at, hopefully your first stop isn't your last stop. I think it would be a good piece of advice for people getting into winemaking. What would be another one? Seek out people who are excited to teach you. So seek out a mentor. I mean, that happened for you. Yes, that definitely, that happened that happened to me in a few different circumstances. Just people who who really believed in me. There was a winemaker, Jordan Fiorentini, who, you know, I looked to her as, okay, she's a, she's a woman winemaker. And then also she said, I know you're early on in this, in your winemaking career, but let me give you a position where you have responsibility and, and let me teach you what I know. And for someone to tell me that, that was kind of the moment where I said, I want to do winemaking as my career. I didn't actually end up staying in that job with her because I really wanted to explore. And she was totally supportive of that. But those Um, are the two repeating themes, right? For you. One mm -hmm. is somebody, for whatever reason that I have yet to figure out yet, we'll get Mm -hmm. there maybe, decides Mm -hmm. to give you a lot of responsibility very Mm -hmm. early on in your relationship with them, Mm -hmm. professionally. And then two, you like to explore. Like you like to go see places that are different. Yes, definitely. And I feel completely lucky in that. I really do. Like you said, for whatever reason, I feel like people have been very open with me and want to teach me and want to learn from me in whatever way. I mean, not to, and these, these are relationships in which the person has far more experience and I'm not, it's not like I'm trying to tell them what to do, but that they actually want to listen to, and it's a collaborative experience, which has been really, really, really great. So what are some examples of that? Kind of the strongest example of that was working for Giusto Occupinti. And that was kind of later down the road in my series of apprenticeships. But he was incredibly, incredibly open to mentoring me and to hearing what I, what I had to say. I mean, from day one, he had no idea what my background was. The only thing maybe that was an advantage to me immediately was that I could communicate with him. I don't think he'd probably had many interns who could speak Italian. So that was perhaps part of it, but also just... Because he doesn't speak English, really. No, he doesn't really speak English. But he has this immense... Uh, I, I've worked with him enough now that I see it in many ways, whether it be with wine buyers or or whether it be with interns or whether it be with other grape growers. He asks so many questions and he's very sincere. He wants to know what people have to say. He wants to know what young people have to say and he wants to know what people with experience have to say. And I I think it's, it's an incredible way to be. So I had fast forward a little bit. I had graduated from Davis. I went back to school there and I wanted to kind of do one last apprenticeship before, I don't know, settling down, I guess was what, what my thoughts were. And um, his wines had always really moved me. They were some of the first uh, natural wines that I had 
been exposed to uh, years prior. And so I reached out to him. And when I arrived, he was on vacation. But the minute he got back, he came up to me and said, Martha, okay, tomorrow I want you to go out into the vineyard. I want you to taste everything. And he kind of explained to me the difference between Neradavala and Frappato, what they look like so I could identify things and, and taste the whites and tell me if you think we should pick and when. And I thought, okay, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do, but that's, uh, and I don't know if he didn't have any work for me to do. And so he just sent me out to the vineyard <laughs> for a while to, uh, taste the fruit or, or, but I, I, I do think that he actually was going to put a little, a little credence in what I had to say about the fruit. I, I said, you know, just do, I don't, I don't, I've never worked with the fruit. I've never worked in Sicily, these are different varieties that I'm not used to. You know, what do you, what do you want me to look for? And he, and he said, you're a human being. You know when fruit tastes ripe. And it was kind of like this, it's not that complicated sort of thing. And and so I went out and I did that and we, we talked about it. And then from that day forward, I felt very comfortable expressing my opinion. And I think that was a really, really cool thing for him to do early on with somebody because it gave them the space. So what did you taste when you went out there? I mean, did it seem like? For me, I felt like it was the first time I learned that fruit can have an incredible depth of ripeness and yet a freshness and an acidity. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Because I think a lot of what I'd been exposed to prior was either in a cool climate, so of course had beautiful acidity, or or more international varieties grown in warm climate where your acid and your ripeness are kind of at odds with one another. And I thought, okay, this is incredible. These indigenous grape varieties maintain their acidity in a warm climate. And then also the soil at coasts in Victoria is so nutrient poor that you never get a high degree of alcohol and yet you get ripeness. And it was a, it was a crazy epiphany for me. So pretty basic, but we're always learning and being exposed to new things. And how does Frappato differ from Nero d'Ava? Frappato is kind of this beautiful, ethereal, aromatic variety. And Nero d'Avola is a bit more savory. They both have acidity, but uh, Nero d'Avola has a little more tannin and a little more structure. And so you're out there tasting and you're like, maybe I'll just fuck with him and tell him he has to get out of here right now. You know? <laughs> I mean, what'd you do? I mean, yeah, I, I, well, actually, there was a little bit where I was like, hey, Justo, come look at this. There's, you know, you start to see like that teeny tiny little, there was like a little bit, I think one berry that I found that had a little bit of botrytis on it. And I was like, oh, check this out. Like, you might want to get it off the vine. He was like, that's, that's not a problem. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was good. And we, we harvested soon after. I think I was, I was there in 2012. It was a fairly easy year in terms of ripeness. So, what was the uh, winery work like? I was the only intern there and the only American and I could communicate with the, the men I worked with, but I would, there was definitely a slightly prevailing attitude that maybe women shouldn't be doing physical labor in the winery. I mean, that's something I've come across. Um, Probably your whole life. <laughs> in, in many circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's out there. I'm not going to say that it's not a factor. It certainly is. How do you deal with that? I mean, what, what do you do? You just work harder? Or? Uh, well, at Coast, yeah. I, I could see that it was a big enough hurdle for me to get over that I just, I lived above the winery and I woke up really early one day and I set up all the equipment and all the machinery by myself 
and <laughs> and uh, the workers showed up and they're like, Martha, did you, did you do this? And I said, yeah, like I'm not, you know, I'm not totally helpless. And then it was funny from from then on. 50 pounds, like it was like, oh yeah, she'll, she can lift it. She's fine. And I was like, actually, can I get a hand with this, please? So, you know, it, uh, yeah, I definitely, it was a way to tip the scales. And it was, you know, sometimes you do feel like you have to prove yourself a little bit. But in the end, you just work hard like you would no matter what your gender is. And, and hopefully it shows through that you're serious about what you do. I guess I'm surprised to hear that it happened down there because I think of Ariana and, mm -hmm. you know, strong female winemaker. And so I would think that they would all be used to this concept by now. But You'd think so, but definitely I can't, I think they kind of started, it was almost when I'd asked them about Ariana, they, it was almost like, oh, well, she's just this, she's her own category. It was like they still saw the world in, in masculine and feminine. And those were, it was a very black and white sort of situation. It was like, um, that was the exception to prove the rule right there. Yeah. That yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, and every culture is different. You know, you still, you, you travel to all these places and you try to maintain a certain amount of cultural sensitivity. I mean, yeah, if someone wants to open a door for me, great. Thank you. There's no argument. But when it comes to kind of, if you feel like you're not going to get a full experience because of your gender, I think you kind of need to try to communicate that and say, no, I, I want, I want to be doing these things. I'm perfectly capable of driving a tractor or I'm perfectly capable of these things. You also have to communicate with people. And I think once that happens, I haven't come across people who still say, no, you can't do this because you're a woman. They just assume that maybe you can't. And so then they don't ask you and then you're yeah. like, no, really I could. Yeah, so exactly. And I, and, I, and I don't, yeah, to go into things without taking offense and then to just try to communicate that here are my skills and and I can do these things and then usually people are responsive how about the wine style did you naturally gravitate towards kind of a more natural style I, oh know? yeah definitely I mean that's a huge part of my winemaking philosophy now absolutely where I uh where did that start I mean at what point were you like oh, okay I mean working at the industrial place coming into Coast, that seems like a kind of a leap. Yeah, it was a leap. I think, you know, after leaving California, wanting to explore a bit more, I ended up, and this was just via a recommendation. I knew nothing about the place. I was drinking some wines from Alsace, actually. And I thought, okay, well, these are fresh and delicious, and let's go see what that's about. I didn't really have this mentality yet where I wanted to focus more on Mediterranean things that would help me later if I wanted to make wine in California. So, I um. Well, you probably didn't put that together yet. No, I didn't. I was just the world's a an open book. Let's go. Let's go. You know, I was drinking this wine once and immediately started applying afterwards. So it was, and I actually can't even remember the wine. But I so I applied for a few places in Alsace and a few places in Germany via some recommendations and ended up at Heyman Lovenstein. Wow, in the Mosul. This is actually like really one of my favorite. Yeah. Wineries. Like no. Just from the wines, you know. Yeah. And it was an excellent recommendation through a friend of a friend. So I can't thank whoever it was. But I got there and it was vineyard heavy, which was excellent. Um, that means you did a lot of work in the vineyards. Yes. Yeah. I was probably in the winery two days uh, of the, I was there around five or six months. So it was great. I got to see the growing season. I mean, it's also a pretty phenomenal place to work in a vineyard all these old terrace vineyards you're doing you know you're doing repair on these slate terraces as much as you're working the vines and 
What do you do to do repair on a slave vineyard? I mean, how does that happen? Uh, so there's no mortar. It's just basically taking stones. And we'd also build these the little monorails. So you build them in place. You kind of, you pound in your stakes, you put in your rail, and then you drive the little monorail up, and then you build another piece as you go. I mean, they're incredibly... I, I was in better shape than I've ever been in. It's an incredibly challenging place to work. I have an immense amount of respect for Reinhard and Connie for wanting to keep these these vineyards alive and wanting to continue to repair these walls. Because and... a lot in Germany is not on terraces anymore. Yeah, a lot isn't. Those were relics of the of the past. And there's, you still see them sometimes, but they're not kept up. But I think he saw that there was a value in um, preserving these sites. A lot of it was some own-rooted parcels that I think he didn't want to disturb. And him and Lovenstein wines are not inexpensive compared to other German wines. And I think that he just said, this is how it's going to have to be because this is the work I'm doing. And and he's been successful in it. So, I mean, I think he's been really... I mean, in- I don't know about the market, but in terms of his influence on other people, it seems like he really was the first person to be like, yeah, we're not doing prodigates. I mean, that mm-hmm. seems like a big thing to mm-hmm. be like, no, I'll say so that's for the birds. We're just going <laughs> to label it like it's a dry wine and they can figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And the wines themselves, I mean, they vary from year to, you know, vintage to vintage, how dry they are. It was just, so that was a, that was a really, not only seeing how much work uh, one should do in the vineyard, but then later on seeing that he just, he just lets go in the winery. I mean, everything's... So what's that mean? Because, you know, a lot of times winemakers are like, oh, we don't do anything. But, yeah. I mean, what does that mean for reality for him? Because uh, the when we were actually harvesting, the process was so slow that we'd bring in a small amount of grapes and it would take all day. So the grapes rested overnight and then we would press them in the morning. And that was it. Some of his uh, kind of like the Schiefer Terrassen, which is a blend of different vineyards, then he would put that kind of base blend to season his fudra, and then and then the single vineyards would all get put in their own fudra or into some stainless steel, and and then left. And it was it was great to see not only a native primary fermentation, but but allowing things to go through malolactic fermentation if they wanted to, which is you know you think especially with these kind of beautifully aromatic white wines that malolactic is at odds, and I absolutely don't think they are. I, I think that. Not only does it provide stability in the wine, but it provides a kind of a savory character that's very much in harmony with all of these aromatic notes. So that was a really, really cool thing for me to see that there aren't boxes for wines. It's not like, oh, you're making an aromatic white wine, therefore you have to um, add a lot of sulfur and prevent mallow from happening. It's, you know, the anticipation and knowing that you're going to go through those processes that you make certain decisions in the vineyard or you're just at peace with making a, a certain type of wine. So he never, you know, if if a wine ended up off dry, it was because it had, the fermentation had arrested and he'd left it for a while and it was stable and then we were going to bottle it. It was, yeah, it was definitely a, a pretty amazing process. Kind of the opposite of that first wine job you had. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the opposite. Very much letting the wine do what it wants to do. And seeing that as an example and then going other places where that was an example. And I still have people tell me, oh, isn't isn't it so risky, these native fermentations? And I honestly feel like I, again, I have more experience now in working in natural 
natural wineries, I guess, than in more commercial wineries. But I've seen an equal number of stuck fermentations in commercial wineries versus naturally made wine. You know, it's something that I feel like if a fermentation generally, if you're a good steward and you understand the process of winemaking, if a fermentation's going to go south, it's going to go south. I And I sometimes think that adding commercial yeast, sometimes you're actually exacerbating a problem because you're creating this huge population that maybe grows a little too fast, uh, outgrows its nutrients, and and then ends up crashing. And it, so it's kind of a, I was speaking with um, with Jerome Lenoir at La Roche and Chinon, and he was saying, yeah, you know, I don't add anything but sulfur to the, my wines because once you do one thing, you just have to do another thing. And it's too much. It's too much. And I, and I feel similarly now. I feel very much at peace with just letting things be. An addition so. implies another addition, and then that implies another addition. Exactly. So maybe you add yeast and you... Again, your population is greater than its carrying capacity. And then you have to add DAP or some other nutrient in order to be able to support that population. And I think winemaking used to be a culture of patience. And I think we've really lost that a lot now. I'd like to return to that. I I would like to, it's okay if a white wine (laughs) ferments through the winter and into the spring. I'm fine with that. I think sometimes it's more interesting. And it's okay if uh, wine needs to age an additional year to achieve stability. I think being a little more patient could really benefit our collective winemaking. So one of the things you hear about German wine a lot is, oh, well, that needs to have a lot of sulfur because it's sweet. Does that mean that Heyman Lohenstein wasn't using botrytis or wasn't making sweet wine? Or Even in a lot of his still wines, I think he trying to assign a percentage to it, it might have been up to 10 or so percent botrytis fruit. Again, this is a, a number of years ago, but my impression is that he really enjoyed that character that it gave it. It was kind of this, uh, another dimension to to the wines. Again, more kind of savory and just a little hint of it. You know, it's like putting a little, something salty in a, in a sweet dish. And so we did that with the still wines. And then we also definitely worked with Trocken Biernosleza, and and we had a Biernosleza as well. So there was a lot of, that was a fun learning experience too, was being out in the vineyard and selecting for different levels of and quality of botrytis and, and then going back to the winery and, and sorting berry by berry, literally into different bins, what was destined for which sweetness level. So it kind of starts from how you pick it. You knew from picking it in the vine, like where it was going eventually. Yeah, so we did a selection, and and it was it was great to get to do that from A to Z. So I'd be out picking, we'd be smelling for off aromas, you know, whether it be volatile acidity or more like oidium sort of notes. So we'd really use our noses a lot, smell a lot of the clusters. There were certain zones that we knew in the vineyard typically produced good botrytized fruit. And so we'd go there first and then we'd select the clusters in separate bins and then within those clusters go through and separate berry by berry. Pretty involved process. I understand why the wines are are precious. And what other wineries did you work at figuring out your way? I went back to school in between and then after that coast and then I did a almost a year in New Zealand. I worked at a winery called Saracen, which was 
In terms of farming, it, I felt like I'd come full circle with that original experience in Tuscany. I mean, we had, there were cows, there was fresh milk, we made butter, there was honey, olive oil. There was an employee that was solely employed to grow food for the rest of the staff. It was definitely, and, and this was in Marlborough, so it was like a, kind of like an oasis in the midst of fairly large commercial industrial winemaking. The whole property was biodynamic and 110 hectare, I think. So it's a lot to do in biodynamic, but it also afforded though the vineyard manager to do some fun experiments like a sulfur-free block, because honestly, if it, it gives you room to experiment when you're working on that sort of scale, definitely. So we did, there was a sulfur-free Sauvignon Blanc block, and then we also made a wine that was sulfur-free from it. So it was kind of a cool, a cool thing to see how that turned out. It was actually one of my favorite wines. It had a lightness and a freshness that I, I didn't necessarily see. It didn't quite have the, um, the aromatics that you associate with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. There's a little bit more minerality to it. The aromatics were a little more subdued. And yeah, there were some savory notes that I thought showed through a little bit more. It was excellent. I, and, and man, it just was so drinkable. It was like, you just, it didn't disagree with your digestion at all. And it went so well with food. I really, yeah, that was a, that was a takeaway for me. So yeah, this year with our, with one of our winemaking projects, we're doing a, a Sauvignon Blanc that's, uh, I think we'll do sulfur free. It just lends itself so well. Sauvignon Blanc is traditionally a fairly reductive variety and it just maintains freshness very easily without the use of sulfur. And I'm not dogmatic one way or another. I add sulfur to most of my wines. How did you find your way from working for other wineries in different parts of the world to doing your own project with other partners? That again goes back to my time in Sicily. When I first started working with Giusto, I mean, he lives very close by to his niece, Ariana, and we'd have dinner a lot. And both Giusto and Ariana asked me early on, oh, so do you want to make your own wine? And I said, yeah, I've been thinking about it for many years. And, um, and they said, oh, are you going to go back and do that? And I said, no, I have some other jobs lined up. And they said, oh, well, you need to start, <laughs> you know? And I, I think particularly having, having Ariana tell me these things and I look at her and she's been in business for 10 years. And, and I thought to myself, yeah. I'd, and, and I kind of would come up with excuses that I, that were, I thought reasonable. I mean, I have no financial backing. I, you know, starting really with zero, but they just said, don't worry about it. Just decide where you want to be and start making wine. Like you'll never feel completely ready. Just start doing it. So reaching out to my friends who I went to school with at Davis, they were kind of going through some similar experiences and, and really getting interested in the farming side of things. And then also very much part of that kind of hands-off, minimalistic winemaking. That's interesting because you don't really associate that with the Davis School of Teaching. Yeah, it's not very normal. I feel like we had a really special cohort. Was that generational or what caused that? I think it was total luck. There was a guy we went to school with, Junichi Fujita, and he was really interested in natural wine before he went to school and kind of started introducing us to these to these wines. And they were just... They just resonated with us. It was an expression that we hadn't really tasted that much before and kind of being, I think being so engrossed in the technical aspects at that point was almost a boon to us because we saw that 
okay, there's all these succession of like uh, yeast and bacteria species that are happening. And, but look at what these people are doing with it. You know, look at how these technical, I think we could grasp how technical natural winemaking could be. That's interesting because that's not a statement you hear very often. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. And I know um, one of my business partners, Sean, you know, he talks about a lot of the natural winemakers he worked with, they're extremely technical. I mean, they're all bringing their wines and looking through microscopes and seeing what their biology is. And they have a huge base knowledge. And, um, you know, going back to him and Lovenstein, Reinhardt had great technical knowledge. I don't think that it's kind of a hands-off approach necessarily from the get-go with some people, but I think that a lot of people really, really know the ins and outs of winemaking. It's not just a bunch of know-nothings where like, I don't know, I don't do anything and it works out. Yeah, yeah. It's not like that. I've found that for the majority, no, of winemakers, it's definitely not like that. So you're saying that the basketball players have to practice before they're good (laughs) in a game? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, at Davis too, even though it's known as being a a school that teaches an interventionist winemaking approach. And I would say that that's pretty accurate. I still had professors. I remember, so one of the courses that was required of us was called wine stability. And it was beyond the microbiology of what's happening in wine, more kind of the chemical processes that happen, you know, as tannins bind, as wine oxidizes, those sort of topics. And the very first day of the course the professor said, I've been, I've been teaching this for years, and I tell my class every year, I hope there is one day where I don't have to teach this. I hope people understand what the fruit that they bring in is giving them and that they don't have to find to soften tannins, that they just understand that, that it comes before. Like, this is a Band-Aid. And, and he said it straight up like that. I mean, and then I think a lot of people might have, you know, forgotten that or, or just taken it you know, not to heart as much as I did. So you're saying that Robin Williams from the Dead Poets Society was your teacher at Davis, and he told you to rip pages out of the book because it had a good beat, but you couldn't dance to it, and you don't judge poetry that way? Is that... <laughs> that that's, that's pretty much the gist. Is that basically yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically it. And then after he died, everyone stood on their desk and did, oh, Captain, my captain? <laughs> oh, man, if only, if only. Davis was fun. It didn't quite get that fun. <laughs> That was more outside of class. <laughs> it's, it kind of sounds like you guys were like the breakfast club. Like we met in detention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this guy had snuck a natural wine into, yeah. the, into the class. And oh, then... yeah. There was a tasting group actually at Davis called Vitus, and we met once a week. And one of my business partners and another good friend took it over our second year that we were there. And... uh I think it might have been a little too much for some people because the following year, or actually, I think even during that year, there was an antivitus that formed. Oh, really? So yeah. it was very. It was. It was fun. I mean, great. Let's. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, let's do this. Yeah, let's have these these factions. It's like, it's yeah. like Dungeons and Dragons kids versus the, <laughs> the haters. Yeah, yeah, it was just like, oh, this is too much. Like, what about these classic these classic wines we want to drink? And and I I think we also though have kind of come back because as much as I want to make natural wine, and that's all. I'm pretty convinced that's what I'll be making for the rest of my life as long as I'm making wine. That's interesting that you say it because, I mean, you're a young person. Yeah, I just... You know, there's a lot of years in there. Yeah, there are. There are. I just don't... I don't want to feel like I have to do one bit of manipulation only to do another, only to do another. And then you just, I just feel like you get lost easily in that pattern. 
And did you ever have to grab people and be like, stop living a lie? <laughs> like that kind of thing? <laughs> mostly, mostly just myself. No, I, uh, I try, you know, I try not to be too preachy about it. Yeah, I, think I get there's that definitely, from you. I think there's like, you'd almost rather not. Yeah. You'd almost rather not be like, yeah, I do the, this Yeah. Thing. You know, everyone comes to their own conclusions in life and I'm very happy with the path that's been presented to me. And, and I, say if there is a natural wine movement that that's also it's not a static thing i think uh, you know i was talking about this today where i don't think natural wines have to taste a certain way they can taste like what maybe what you'd call traditional wines that having a very clean longer elevage structured wine can be made very much naturally it doesn't have to be something that's super red fruit glue glue I think there's space for both of those things. I think they're both delicious. Varieties is hugely important. You know, with our winemaking project, so we have a cooperative, four friends. We all work together. Because that's not the normal model. I mean, the normal model, would you would go out by yourself and do custom crush or something, or you would make it in a winery that you worked at. or Yeah, yeah. And that was, um, I mean, we all are very good friends and are very supportive of one another. But I also think that, there were certain things where all four of us were aligned. We all knew that we wanted to start farming vineyards, which is... What do you mean by that? Be both leasing and managing and managing the people who are working in our vineyards, working alongside them. But also, I mean, we have some smaller plots that we just, we do everything. We do the pruning, we do the green work, we do the sprays. Which is a little more unusual in the in the California yeah. setting than yeah. maybe the European setting. Yeah, exactly. And we had these examples of, uh, you know, vignerons. And a lot of them, though, were multi-generation families. So we knew that that, you know, wasn't really available to us. So we kind of decided to more or less make our own family, combine resources. Because none of you was rich. And as you said, you didn't have backing, really. Yeah. No, we didn't have backing. And, you know, I, I think we actually are happy with the way that has gone. I don't think we are seeking backing because I mean, all of you listeners out there, don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> don't, don't stop the offers from coming. But I think we really, we wanted to have a strong philosophy before a pressure to have a return on investment came into play. So yeah, doing things pretty bootstrapping. So we would try to find vineyards that we thought had a ton of potential, but um, maybe had been a little, neglected and we definitely found quite a few dilapidated vineyards that had been pruned very poorly or not pruned for a year and it takes a lot of work to get them back in line but it's something that uh, we have the energy to do and you know really learned really learned from people who focused on vine longevity who focused on soil health things that we felt like okay we can come to these vineyards and we have tools to apply and so that was a huge thing for us that we wanted to do. Um, and we knew, again, we couldn't do it alone. And then also knowing that we wanted, again, coming back to that concept of trying to go back to a winemaking culture of patience, we really wanted to have our own winemaking space. So if, if we felt like something should be overwintered again, we could do it. And not to say that you can't do it at a custom crush facility. It's just, it's a little more difficult. And we wanted to not have any yeast in our winery. So found a, a space and decided to combine resources with equipment. And then it kind of slowly progressed where we said to ourselves, let's just combine the whole business. You know, we all want to be out farming. We want to be making wine. We don't want to be 
running our own businesses. So the four of us can kind of divide and conquer the the less glamorous parts of the industry, which is compliance and, and that sort of stuff. Well, that's actually kind of amazing what you're describing. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, we're, we're in our infancy. We started in 2014 and we've tried to stay open with one another in terms of communication. But I just, I, I look back and I'm pretty proud of what we've done in the past year and a half. You know, we have built out a small winery space and we're leasing now about a little over 10 acres, planted four acres of rootstock this past year. And we're going to graft over that four acres and plant another four. And so it's a lot to do when we all still have full-time jobs and do this on the side, but it's, we realize, you know, when one person's tired, the other person can kind of pick up the the slack and we we're in it for the long haul. That's really good. I mean, it is kind of like a communal farm. It is. I know. And it's kind of, you know, I was talking about this the other day, kind of our, maybe at least my parents' generation, there was, there was a kind of push for the communal lifestyle and, and we're not, we're not all trying to live together. <laughs> we're not all trying, but we're like, I don't go to your house and see like a bed where all four of you. Yeah. Sleep, yeah. No, like that kind of thing. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there yet. No, but I think it's, uh, we do realize that cooperation is kind of in our future where I think as a society, we're living in smaller spaces. There's more communal living. There's more collaboration. We're kind of in a more of a shared economy and, and it made sense for us to do that with wine in California because when I look at the explosion of wine labels in California, it seems like people tend to, as soon as they can, start their own thing on their own, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it is highly competitive. But we, I think part of it was a desire, yeah, to create for oneself. I think that's a huge, it's a huge kind of fundamental push in someone who works with their hands, who wants to create. You do want to kind of go out and see what you're capable of on your own. But additionally, you know, there were these things that I, I didn't see in California, at least not very much, where, you know, trying to actually farm your own vineyards, trying to kind of bring in a vineyard model, but obviously you can't directly translate that from the European model. I mean, there's, California is a different place, but, you know, seeing that there aren't a lot of people doing this and maybe, yeah, maybe we should give it a go because... I'm not seeing a lot of people that we could go and work for who, you know, either they're too small and they're kind of on their own and don't really have the ability to take on employees or, or it just doesn't exist. So let me see if I have this right. Yeah. There's a generation of California people who went to Bordeaux to study. Mm -hmm. They came back and they made Cabernet successfully, became a thing. That's big money today. Yes. Then there was a generation of people from different parts of California, maybe the South, mm -hmm. who went to Burgundy, saw Jaillet came back, we're like, hey, you know, we could make really good Pinot, mm -hmm. maybe some Chardonnay. Yep. And then they did that, and they became successful. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that there's not a lot of people who are funding wineries, who are in positions of power to make decisions about saying, oh, okay, this is going to be the line, this is going to be the investment decision we make, this is what we're going to expect to make money on at some point, mm -hmm. who have been to Sicily, looked at what was going on there, or have been doing work on the terraces in Germany or have gone and worked with Leon Barral, mm -hmm. you're saying that you guys kind of had a different set of role models that you went, studied with, and then came back and you're like, well, we're really interested in this kind of production, but I don't see someone willing to fund that. Mm -hmm. So we'll just get together and kind of each figure it out and help each other out. And then the part where I feel like giving up 
is the part where I'm going to stick it out because I'd be letting down my friend and coworker mm-hmm. here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the summing it up? Yeah. No, I think that's a, a great synopsis of really what we're trying to do. And we're all a product of what time we grew up in. And, you know, the inspiration, we were drinking a wider variety of things, both in terms of curiosity and in terms of affordability. I mean, to be interested in wine, and this is always something that's a little bit been a little bit difficult for me because I haven't had, you know, huge amounts of money to spend on wine. And I'm extremely curious. And the best way to learn about wine is by drinking it. And so going to these places and maybe immersing yourself on a deeper level is my way of gaining access, I guess. And these wines are more affordable. And I think that that has a huge effect on us. And then also just saying that, you know, maybe what is California like? I think there are some excellent places for growing Pinot Noir. Uh, There's some excellent places for growing Cabernet, but there's a lot of places that are, have more in common with the South of France and more in common with Sicily in terms of climate that maybe those should be the models that we should go seek out and at least give it a go. I mean, I, working with Naradavala in California, I think it has a huge amount of potential. Still, I've worked with it in California for two, (laughs) this is my second vintage now. So really, Another thing with the the desire to make wines naturally is to really try to get a baseline for what these vineyards and these varieties can do here. So not a lot of makeup on the wine. What what is what does the soil give? What does the climate give? I think we're still trying to figure out what California terroir is like. And it's a great exploration. I don't know if it'll if I will come to, you know, many solid conclusions by the time my my life's work is done, but I hope, you know, I hope to be a, a piece of that puzzle. It's interesting that you can even find Nero Davila in California. Yeah. You know, when I knew I wanted to come back and make wine in California, we knew we wanted to start in the 2014 vintage and it was just before the 2013 vintage. And so, you know, we made this whole database of people we wanted to contact, just basically trying to look for organic vineyards and varieties that we thought would do well in California. And we came across one Naradavala vineyard, Fox Hill up in Mendocino County. And going and talking with the owner, Lowell Stone, was, I mean, I spent quite a few afternoons sitting down with him, drinking wine and asking him, you know, what what kind of possessed you to to plant out 20 different Italian varieties? And he just thought, you know, I I thought they'd be interesting here. I thought they'd do well here. So it was a kind of a similar exercise to what I'm going through now, where he's of an older generation, but just kind of like, let's be pioneers. Let's see what it does. And I think they can be excellent. So it's just a matter of finding those like-minded people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, does that push you out into the sticks sometimes? I mean, are you out like in some far areas of California? Definitely. Absolutely. I think maybe when we're looking for vineyards, we look for kind of a slightly different set of criteria than a lot of of other people looking for vineyards, which is great for us. I mean, <laughs> which means we're not looking in all the same places as, as other people, but is there a compelling soil here? Um, it doesn't have to be a tried and true growing region. You know, it doesn't have to be tested for us. If we go out there and, we, for instance, we actually saw an ad on Craigslist for a vineyard up in, in a region called Manton Valley. It's one of the newest AVAs in California. And I'd never heard of it. Diego, who actually found the listing, had never heard of it. Uh, We drove up there in July and 
uh, just had no idea what to expect. It's at the base of Mount Lassen. Um, so it's a pretty high elevation, small growing region. And as I've looked into it now, it's kind of cool because up in this area, the base of Mount Lassen, some of the first vineyard plantings in California were planted there. Why do you think that is? I, I'm not sure. I honestly don't know the history enough. I, it was, they were planted by Peter Lassen, obviously associated with the, the name of the place. Um, and that's a volcano, right? Yeah, Mount Lassen is an active volcano. It's part of the, in the southernmost portion of the Cascade Range. So that puts it close to Oregon. Yeah, fairly close to Oregon. I mean, it's about three and a half hours north of San Francisco inland. And it sounded so interesting to us, but it was, you know, Chardonnay planted there. And we thought, okay, inland Chardonnay, it's pretty hot there, but let's go see what it's about. But it, it's at an elevation that's actually quite cool. The whole little valley is most of the plantings are own rooted, which is pretty unique in California. So we found this, this vineyard was planted in 1972 and it's an amazing growing region. It's Mount Lassen is perennially snowy, so you get a lot of cold air coming down. There's plenty of water, but we, you know, we mostly kind of go for for dry farm vineyards anyway. And it had been organic because the stakes were. I think when the stakes are a little lower, people kind of take. I would say take a few more risks. I don't think farming organically is really that risky at all. Well, Tegan used to say like organic by neglect. Mm-hmm. Like they just hadn't really cared for it, so they hadn't thrown a ton of chemicals on it. Yeah, and I and I would say that this vineyard kind of fit into that category. It had gone through the kind of the foreman who was managing it. The property owner didn't live there. She's since moved up there and really put a lot of effort and attention into the vineyard. And we've worked with her on that. We kind of have started managing it alongside her, which has been a great relationship. So finding those people that maybe don't have the knowledge, who are willing to listen, who are willing to kind of take on, again, this region isn't tested and we aren't in many ways, you know, we're a new brand, no one knows of us. So, you know, kind of finding those, those relationships where it's mutually beneficial has been really great for us. So yeah, we're definitely off the beaten path. I mean, but we fell in love with this region so much that we actually, that was where we are planting out this, this new vineyard. Are you able to go to those people and kind of trade vineyard expertise and work for lower prices for fruit? Are you able to say like, yeah, we'll help you work this if you... Yeah, I mean, okay, so the prices are lower up there certainly than they would be in Sonoma County, but we're actually, we're offering her, I think, the highest price in the region. You're expecting her to listen to this podcast, is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. No, she's, uh, you know, we're asking her to do things that we know we're farming ourselves, we know the cost involved. And... We want to create, since we don't own our own vineyards, we're either leasing or um, or buying fruit, we want to create long-term relationships. And you can't do that by by not paying people properly. It's just not sustainable. You'd like to keep the vine material in the ground. Like you'd yeah, like old absolutely. vines later. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a cost to admission for that. And we totally understand that. And um, it seems like also a lot of the winemaking decisions that you're making in terms of style are actually you're looking at them as viticulture decisions of how the vineyard is farmed. So if you farm it like this, then you can make that kind of wine later. Absolutely. Not only the the fruit for the eminent vintage, but looking at, okay, well, we, again, want these long-term relationships to develop. And therefore, we want to prune for vine longevity. We want to take the time to feed the soils in a proper way so that the vines don't peter out over time. So we're trying to have a long-term approach, even though we're very young. And I think we've worked for uh, enough people where that has been a huge priority that it just, 
it can't help but rub off on us. So, and, and I'd like to see more of it in California. I really would. I think, uh, you know, agriculture in general in California is one of taking more kind of than we put back in going maybe back to my hippie Sebastopol roots. It's, it's just not equitable for the long term. Yield is very important. I'm not going to discount that. But I, particularly in wine, I think that we are in an industry where we can use the fact that we produce a slightly more premium product in order to kind of catalyze change in agriculture in general in California. We should be farming vineyards organically. I don't see, I don't see why, we, why we shouldn't be doing that. Certainly in the premium wine world, you know, we have the margins to do that. It's kind of, it, there's a certain social responsibility to that. I mean, I, there's a lot of ways to do things. Let's kind of set an example for the rest of agriculture if we can. And I'm not just talking about farming practices. I'm also talking, I mean, there's a whole slew of things involved with labor that I think that we could really set an example for the rest of the industry. Because this is not a cash crop. You're not making pennies on the thing. You'd like to turn this around and treat people with respect and giving them a living wage. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we can do that in this industry. Definitely. And, And hopefully we can, we can start doing that with a lot of the things that we farm. You know, you got to maybe be a little more creative with it. And it was interesting for me when I, so I worked in Australia for um, a little bit and it was interesting, at least in the, even in the winemaking side of things, the hierarchy wasn't quite as stratified as it is in California. The head winemaker would certainly make more than the seller hands, but the seller hands in Australia would make a lot more, you know, relative to us. So it was like the head winemaker took a little bit of a pay cut. The seller hands had a little bit more money. Hierarchy was still there, but I, I wonder if we maybe need to do that in, there's just such a divide in California with viticulture and winemaking where it's, you know, it's, we're not in a caste system. Like we don't have to have a showy estate by any means. Like I, I certainly want to be comfortable in life, but I also want to have employees that are knowledgeable that are, are are there for the long term and that may involve you know bringing in other aspects of farming again it's not just the kind of ecological benefits involved with having animals in the vineyard or having other things growing there but it keeps employees busy year-round I mean that's I think it's just kind of a healthier system both socially and environmentally Martha Stuman has seen what's possible in California and she sees that as a responsibility thank you very much for being here today thank you Levy Martha Stuman of the Living Wines Collective in California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.